Welcome to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast. This is your host, DPT Steph, your doctor of physical therapy, bringing you all things PT with an interdisciplinary approach so that you can be the best clinician that you want to be. Thank you for tuning in to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast. This is Stephanie, your doctor of physical therapy, otherwise known as DPT Steph. On today's episode, I'm so excited to have Dr. Zachary Goldstein. And to get us started, why don't you give us a little introduction about yourself? Yeah, my name is Zachary Goldstein. Uh, I'm a fifth-year orthopedic surgery resident. At Thanks for having me on. I did college out east in New York City and then um, have pretty much spent the rest of my time back in the Midwest. I did a year of uh, research in uh, orthopedics at uh, Midwest Orthopedics at Rush in Chicago before medical school. And then I've been in medical school at Indiana University and then uh, orthopedic residency uh, as well. I'm going to be doing a fellowship in spine surgery actually uh, next year at Beaumont in Detroit. And then uh, another six month second fellowship in minimally invasive spine surgery with some of the uh, guys at Cedar sinai uh, out in Los Angeles. And then uh, we'll see where my uh, job takes me after that. But um, interested to talk to you a little bit more about, you know, the aspects of physical therapy and orthopedic surgery and how we, you know, interact and, and some of the good and some of the bad. So thanks again yeah, for having me. Of course. Well, we're definitely definitely going to get into like the PT and the ortho world and your surgery world as well. But kind of give me a picture of, you know, did you always know you wanted to be a physician? And did you always know that you wanted to be an ortho? Yeah, great question. So not at all. You know, I was not one of those that, you know, grew up wanting to be a doctor. I, you know, my mother's a dentist, but I don't really have any doctors in the family. And, you know, I always liked science in high school. I you know, love physics. I love chemistry, but wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it. And then when I started college, you know, medicine was kind of always out there as a possibility. Um, still hadn't really been, hadn't decided yet um, until really I started shadowing doctors. My summer of my, between my sophomore and junior years. And that was when I really decided I really liked medicine. Um, I thought it combined a lot of the aspects of you know, science that I liked with some of the, the practical um, career goals I had. And some of the earliest physicians that I shadowed were orthopedic surgeons. And I just, I fell in love with the specialty and, and I knew I wanted to do, to do orthopedics, you know, even before medical school, which is not necessarily common and not necessarily something that I would tell, you know, people that they need to have decided before they start, you know, I'm sure it's similar in physical therapy where you don't have to know exactly what area of physical therapy you want to do before you go to physical therapy school. Mm -hmm. But in my case, I knew that. And certainly that, that kind of helped me uh, be able to add things to my resume that I think helped me, you know, uh, match into a career in orthopedics. But I don't think, again, that's, that's a requirement for people. And yeah, the, the more I saw about orthopedics, the more I liked it. And I was lucky enough to match uh, into orthopedics. And then, you know, spine surgery is a little different in the sense that I didn't know when I got into orthopedics, what aspect of orthopedics I wanted to do, but um, that's something that's kind of found me along the way. And, and I've kind of been drawn to it. Nice. So now you end up now in this more specialized spine sector, I would say of orthopedics. What has this journey like residency been like for you, like highs and lows of just being on that service? Yeah, medical residency is tough. You know, it, it really is, um, especially surgical residency. There, there's no way you know around it. I've always been someone that I'd like to think that I succeeded at a lot of the challenges throughout my my life and education. Um, but there's definitely challenging days. 
but I, I really think it's not a cliche when people say if you love what you do, you, you don't you know work a day in your life. I, I really think it's true. I, I would rather spend 16 hours a day in the operating room doing something that I really enjoy than having a desk job. That, that's just me. And so I, I think that's really helped. Um, you know, there, there's challenges in the hours that you work, having to prioritize what's important in your life you know, outside of work and, and really there's time for a couple things for you to do. You know, you, you got to decide what those things are and you got to, you know, sometimes give up some of the other hobbies that you had along the way. In high school, I, I played in a rock band, a couple of rock bands, and then throughout college, I, I played the drums. And that was something, for example, that I always enjoyed. And I just, with a career and family, a couple of kids, it's just one of those things that I've kind of given up along the way. It doesn't mean I don't love doing it, but, uh, you know, you, you give your time to other things in life, so. Exactly. And you always have to find that perfect balance but right like you said you can't lose what you enjoy it has to be a little bit of everything okay now being in the hospital or in like a surgical setting for several years what's your exposure like to pts in the hospital because i'm sure you work with them often oh yeah yeah you know that's a you, can be, you can be yeah, brutally no, honest you can be yeah no it's kind of a i'm trying to think of a good analogy it's kind of a love-hate relationship at times you know i guess what i would say is there's a big team in the hospital whenever you're talking about inpatient care. And that's from everyone from, from nursing to pharmacy to all the doctors involved, you know, medical students, residents, attendings, fellows, and then physical therapy certainly is in that uh, team category, especially with our patients, with orthopedic patients, trauma patients. We're all working with the same common goal in mind, you know, and that's to take the best care of patients that we can. You know, I think on the pros side of things, you know, I think therapy is tremendous in, in teaching um, our patients, you know, for example, in, in total joints patients, um, teaching them precautions, you know, posterior hip precautions, for example, teaching them how to be safe at home, um, giving them exercises to do to get started on, you know, post-operative rehab protocols. Um, that's all super important. It actually has a direct correlation with, with how our patients do after surgery. Furthermore, physical therapy, you know, you guys save our butts. We can't have patients going home and falling and, and breaking things and then suing us. And so I think you guys are always, you know, looking out for that and not discharging people too early. You know, on the flip side of things, you know, sometimes a little bit of a butting heads, you know, if you will, because, you know, our goal is we want to get patients out of the hospital, get them home. You know, we think that patients do better, you know, in their home environment. And, and we're not there with patients a lot of times, you know, we might come in for five minutes, you know, to see a patient and that's, Five minutes is being generous. I'm sure you've seen. Mm -hmm. um, you guys are spending, you know, what, a half hour, 45 yeah, minutes? around. Yes, yeah, so you guys really know kind of where they're at. And so, you know, when if we think someone might be ready to go home and you guys say, oh, no, they're not ready yet. And I've seen, <laughs> I've seen people <laughs> get upset oh, about that. Yep, yep. <laughs> and that's okay. But um, I think that communication is key. You know, um, one thing I've always appreciated with the inpatient therapist is ones that will, you know, reach out to us. So not just putting a note in, but sending us a, an actual text or a message through the hospital system, letting, them, letting us know how the patients are doing. Also, therapists that give us really good kind of finite uh, predictions. So, you know, okay, this patient's not ready to go home today, but I'm pretty sure that by tomorrow, they should be, they should be good or, or, you know, two more days because they need to work on stairs or, or, or whatnot. I, I think that helps rather than just kind of blanket statements of, oh, they're not ready yet. No. <laughs> and that's great to know because communication is a huge factor. And obviously, you know, the earlier we know things, the better and the more concrete. Is there anything that you would say if you could change it? I know it's in, not in hospital, you, there's so many like rules and regulations and discharge dates that have to be like done by. 
if there was anything that you could change about the relationship between like your service and the therapy services, would there be anything? And again, you can be brutally honest. We're not, no one's going to take offense to it. <laughs> yeah, I think overall it works pretty well, the system, especially in, in a lot of like private practice models in community hospitals where there's really good relationships. You know, I really, really like um, hospital EMRs that list very clearly all the members of a patient care team. So like on the homepage, you'll see, you know, the nurse and like the number to reach them and the resident number to reach them and the therapist who's working with them that day and like their phone that they're carrying their number. And it makes it really, really easy to reach out to them. Some of the older EMRs were like, you have no idea who's taking the care of the patient or, or, or anything that can get really frustrating at times. Yeah. Um, and it, again, it goes back to my, my whole communication thing. I think as long as there's an open line of communication, I, you know, ultimately I think that's what's important for the patient. So. Yeah. Now I am not super familiar with residency and how things work. I just know residents as they are in the hospital setting. Do you also have like outpatient or like more clinic based care involved as well that you have to do? Yeah, absolutely. So we, um, we're very lucky, at least in my program, we spend you know a lot of time in the hospital and inpatient settings, but we also do a lot of outpatient work and sometimes with private groups in the Indianapolis area. So we get to see kind of, kind of both sides of the picture. Um, so we do a lot of interaction with outpatient physical therapy as well. We work in several offices where they actually have therapists there in the office, which I love that idea. I think it's so great being able to see a patient and then, you know, saying, Hey, I think you need some physical therapy. And instead of saying, I'll give you a script and I trust that you're going to get into ATI or Athletico or somewhere, you know, where you live. Oh, Hey, we got a therapist down the hall. Let me just walk you down there right now. And they'll show you some exercises right now. Um, so I, that's a really, really nice, nice model for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And it also just, you know, adds to that collaborative care, which then like if someone needs to refer it back to the physician or back to the PT, they can do so because it's all almost in-house. So now I'll be crass for a second. PTs, when they have to deal with physicians or ortho physicians outside in the outpatient setting, a lot of the times we have patients that come to us and they're like, oh my gosh, my doctor said my MRI is terrible or like my back is blown out. And I've even heard physicians in my own hospital on calls with patients, outpatients that are like, oh my gosh, your discs are herniated. Like we need to get you into surgery ASAP. And it's, you know, PTs form this narrative like, oh gosh, all physicians are terrible. And then physicians will blame the PTs and vice versa. So like, what do you think from your perspective, being on that physician side, should patients be told these things? And, you know, if they are, like, what do you think, if they come to you for a second opinion, like, how would your way of handling it be? I think that's a really good point. You know, I've definitely seen it on both sides. And I think that, again, it kind of comes back to communication. I think that when we're sending patients to therapy, and we send so many patients to therapy, I mean, pretty much every orthopedic problem, unless it's cancerous or going to kill them, patients have the option to try all the non-operative stuff first. And we prefer that. And a lot of times insurance companies dictate that. And so pretty much the first step of all the algorithms for any orthopedic problem is to physical therapy. And a lot of times, you know, we're sending them out with a prescription if they're going to go out and see another physical therapist somewhere. And I think that's, that's the first step where problems arise because sending a generic physical therapy prescription saying, well, sometimes not saying anything really can lead to, you know, miscommunication and confusion on the other end where now the patient's basically trying to give the therapist a story of, hey, why am I here to see you? And sometimes they don't really remember what was said or, I mean, that's not the way to do it. And so I think the best way to do it um, from the get-go is for us to be sending prescriptions with very clear instructions of what the diagnosis is, 
what we want them to work on, what restrictions they have, you know, their weight bearing restrictions or their motion restrictions, maybe how often we want them to be seen. I think that kind of sets things off on a really good foot for sure. So I think that's the first step. Um, certainly postoperatively, I think we do a lot better job of that, where if it's a postoperative patient, we're a lot more protective of them and, and we'll be more specific with, with those instructions. Um, and then also as patients go along, you know, either postoperatively, um, changing our restrictions will help a lot too. You know, it's, I've seen it a lot where we tell a patient, hey, you can now start lifting or we never tell the therapist that. And that's the source of confusion as well. It goes both ways though. I've seen a lot of um, surgeons get upset sometimes when, when therapists say things uh, to patients. And I, I've seen it the most like in post-operative situations. So like uh, with total joints, for example, I mean, it happens so often that a patient's had a hip replacement or a knee replacement and they're doing great. And they come back, you know, at their six week visit, they started therapy and they're furious because their therapist told them that their hips or their legs were different lengths. And one leg was like, you know, a couple inches longer than the other. And oh my God, you lengthened my leg. And, 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 you know, this has been brewing in their mind for weeks and weeks now. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, with that example, we don't actually, we, we do lengthen legs a little bit sometimes, but oftentimes it's not enough to notice. We do that on purpose um, for like, you know, soft tissue tensioning right. and stability. Um, but a lot of times patients think that their legs are different lengths just because their pelvis is now sitting differently with, with their, their implants and haven't gotten used to their new, their new gait and their new stance. And that kind of evens out over time. And, you know, if we had a chance to explain that to the patient, you know, it probably would have alleviated a lot of that kind of stress and anxiety. And so I think that's another situation where I think communication, you know, we would be better, but, but it goes both ways and it, and it comes back to communication. Right. No, and I have no problem admitting there are, I think in every profession, there's always like a good chunk of that profession of people that are just like, ah, you got to watch kind of what you say, what you do. You know, there's, I saw an article this morning about like the way that codes are being billed and this, there's like 18 people in this clinic in Pennsylvania that are now under fraud investigation and it's a PT clinic. And I'm like, we, we know as a profession that this, you know, there's issues that go along all the time, but it's like, it still exists. So I totally have no issue admitting that there's faults in our profession as well. And I can go on a whole tangent about leg length discrepancies and the research behind that, but people <laughs> still swear by certain techniques and, but I digress. Yeah. Um, Let me just put we, a, a quick, quick, quick plug out there for all therapists listening. The only way to really accurately measure the leg length, especially after like a hip replacement is via x-ray. So you can get fooled really easily. I mean, yeah. you know, using tape measures and measuring from the hip to the center of the ankle. I mean, you can do it, but it's, it's not quite as accurate. So, right. And then you have also the therapists who do like a very outdated technique of like trying to palpate the pelvis. Someone's definitely, I can already feel someone's going to listen to this and come right at me in my DMs. Then there's like, <laughs> we, I was even taught this in school and that was in the past five years and it's stuff that's on boards, but like it's techniques that are like so outdated and you can, oh, you can see if the pelvis is like misaligned by feeling it and I'm like if we could do that we wouldn't need x-ray machines because our our eyes could just see through the skin I guess I don't know <laughs> exactly. anyway anyway I I again whole other podcast episode we could do about that um yeah, we should do we should do one just on leg length discrepancy exactly be great. I, yeah we could do that we could do spine back pain the whole nine whole nine yards um what kind of walk me through like what your thought process is if you have let's say hypothetically active 40 year old patient comes into outpatient clinic he says he has back pain for several months but again barely active not overweight and then you do an MRI he has disc herniations what's like your thought process 
to kind of find if they're a good surgical candidate or someone. I know you said before you'd prefer more conservative care, but maybe they're coming in, they're like, oh, do I need surgery? And like, kind of, you know, how do you come to a conclusion of what they should be better off with? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so with, you know, disc herniation specifically, it can be tricky and you can get fooled. Um, you know, they've done studies where they've looked at just general people, you know, in the, in the population. And so you gave me an example of a 40 year old, uh, that's mm -hmm. kind of on the borderline of two different age groups, but at that age group, um, if you MRI, um, just, you know, hundred healthy people off the street, you're going to get about half of them and actually have disc bulges and about a quarter of them will have um, frank disc herniations on MRI and they're completely asymptomatic. So a lot of people will, will I'm have, so, I'm, you can't see that I'm like applauding right now because I'm so happy you're saying this, but go on. <laughs> and not, not a problem. Um, and, and so it's really important to match the imaging findings with, with signs and symptoms. You know, if we see a patient and they've been worked up, they've, they've done therapy, they've gotten an MRI, and we think that their history and their exam is consistent with a nerve that's being compressed by a specific um, disc, then we've made that diagnosis of a disc herniation causing, you know, usually what's called a radiculopathy. Um, and then we kind of talk about treatments. Um, most patients, even with back or leg pain, disc herniations will resolve in within six weeks, if not by three months. And so um, the duration of symptoms is, is usually one of the more important factors um, in that. If someone's really had symptoms for, you know, three months and they've tried everything, including extensive therapy, the only other thing to try is usually an injection. We do a lot of injections. Um, those are really, it's a dual purpose, those injections. A lot of times they're, they're hopefully therapeutic to the patient. Um, but oftentimes they're diagnostic. It's usually the final piece in the puzzle to tie together everything we're finding on MRI, their, their exam findings, their history. Um, and if they get a good result, albeit temporary with the injection, then that's usually the final you know, piece of the puzzle that says, okay, this is your problem. You tried everything else. You've been dealing with it for way too long. Let's do something about it. Um, but that's a, that's a collective, you know, collaborative process between us and the patient. Not, not every patient's the same. And that's something that you know, if they want to go ahead with surgery, you know, at that point, we'll, we'll offer it to them. And, and there's plenty of research showing out there that, you know, when patients come to that realization that they're not going to get better without surgery, um, that they do do better with, with um, surgery for disc herniations. Right. And we even know I, there are studies that I don't think they're PT specific studies, but studies that we've kind of learned in our PT curriculum that, you know, there's a huge psychological component to those patients who have back pain. So I, I agree with like the sentiment being if they're kind of already giving into the whole like, oh, I just need surgery and oh, that's when I got better. It may actually do some good for them. That, yeah, that's a really good point. And, and I'll switch gears a little bit and talk about shoulders. You know, there's, um, there were some really good studies um, for rotator cuff tears. So, you know, the four major rotator cuff muscles, um, the most commonly torn one, the supraspinatus. There's some good studies that show that the single biggest predictor for people getting better with physical therapy after a rotator cuff tear is patient's belief in physical therapy helping them before doing it. So we tell patients, you know, patients have to, they have to think that therapy is going to help them for it to actually work. I mean, they're not going to get better unless they give it their all. Um, I used to give uh, drum lessons to kids uh, back in the day. You know, you can teach, you can teach someone all the different notes and how to do everything with the sticks. And if they don't go home and practice, they're, they're not going to get it. They're not going to really get good. Um, and so it's the same thing with, with uh, therapy. And so I think that's another uh, piece of the puzzle where we have a really important uh, job as orthopedic surgeons where, you know, we're 
recommending physical therapy, but we also have to give patients the thought or the belief that it's going to help them. And it doesn't take us long. It could be an extra 30 seconds where we basically say, hey, you know, by doing some physical therapy and strengthening your core and stretching your hamstrings, you're going to take, you know, stress off of your, your back and the vertebrae, you build up the muscles around there, and that's going to help you and you'll feel better. I mean, that gives them a whole different perspective going into therapy. And I think they get a lot more out of therapy that way. Yeah, and that's totally true. And that also the responsibility falls on obviously not only you guys, but also the PCs to help them kind of understand that, hey, like, you know, give this a couple of try, come in for X amount of sessions, and then, you know, let's see and start getting you better. And I know even before I was in the hospital, I did outpatient orthopedics for a couple of months. And I even noticed my own narratives that I was using. If I have a patient come in every single time, I'm like, hey, how's your pain versus just like a generic hey, how are you doing? How was your week? What's going on? Then they're going to automatically start focusing on the pain. And that could actually make it more persistent than if I were to kind of make it into a more positive outlook. So there's a huge, huge role that the narratives play in everything. I mean, but that's also, you know, I'm glad that you're kind of, you have this awareness in your practice, because like I said earlier, there's so many, you know, physicians, whether they're in the ortho field or even just, you know, primary care, that they're like, oh, your MRI says this, like your back is, you need surgery or your back's not going to get better because then these patients get so fearful and then they come to us in the PT office and we're like, um, well, we're not the physician per se, but we do understand back pain and I promise you, you're going to get better despite your physician saying that your back is blown out. So it's like a catch-22. So much of what we do is reassurance and I'm sure and you're in as well. Um, and then uh, another thing I wanted to talk about uh, yeah. on this topic is the insurances, the insurance company's role in physical therapy as it pertains to orthopedic problems. So this is a whole other thing where you have a subset of patients that come in and it's very clear that at some point they're going to need surgery and, and therapy is probably not going to help them. Uh, for example, patients with horrible end stage arthritis in their knees. You know, you look at some of these knees and there's not one singular chondrocyte, you know, cartilage cell left in that knee that thing is 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 completely bone on bone um and and you just know looking at them that they're going to need a knee replacement and they haven't really tried anything yet and a lot of insurance companies unfortunately as silly as it sounds will not pay for their surgery unless they have documented that the patient tried physical therapy Um, and it's not with every insurance company um there's certain ones that we know kind of require this stuff and those are patients that we'll, we'll just tell them honestly, like, listen, we can schedule your surgery, but it's going to be denied. You're going to have to probably do some physical therapy, a couple sessions, and they say, okay, fine. And we tell them it's really just so we can get your your surgery approved. It's kind of silly, right? Because like the insurance companies have been, they're just paying, they're going to pay for the same surgery anyways. They're just now paying for extra physical therapy. And then it's kind of a waste of your guys' time and it's a waste of the patient's time. And this is kind of where our society is and and these things. It's kind of frustrating for us that, that, you know, we have this bureaucratic red tape that sometimes we have to we have to jump through. Yeah, I mean, and that definitely is a huge component of it. But then I also want to challenge you and kind of think of it this way and say, okay, if you have a patient that comes in with arthritis, like you described, bone on bone, they're a great candidate for knee surgery. You can also kind of phrase it and say, hey, well, before your surgery, your insurance is requiring this, but let's view it as kind of like a prehab to your surgery so that you can get stronger. So when you come out of your surgery, you're almost like a little bit ahead of the curve because obviously knee surgery, especially they're coming out with significant weakness on that side where they had the surgery. 
and they might overcompensate then on the other side. But if they know kind of ahead of time and view it from a prehab perspective, it may even lead to better outcomes afterwards. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, no, that that's a really good point. Um, that's definitely a positive. In fact, I can probably work that into some of my preoperative discussions <laughs> as, as well. Um, no, I mean, prehab's important. We do prehab a lot of things like ACL tears and young people yeah. can't fix their ACL if their knee won't bend or if their quad is completely weak. I mean, you can do a great surgery, but they are not going to do well if they're starting in a really bad spot. So uh, that, that's a really good point. Yeah. And then what's your kind of outlook? I know kind of been shifting over the past, I'd say maybe 10, 20 or so years between like the relationship between physicians and PTs. It used to be that you know, physicians would have these old like prescription type looking papers or pads and they'd have, okay, the patient needs heat, stim, three times 12 exercises or, you know, whatever. And now we're kind of just more into like the generic scripts because PTs do have that ability to determine for themselves what the plan of care needs to be. So like from your perspective, do you tend to try to like prescribe to the PT, like what the patient should be doing or, you know, do you kind of I guess, essentially trust the PT to kind of figure out, obviously precautions, like when it comes to surgery, we're all on the same page. Yeah, that's a really good question. So at some point in my early, my residency, maybe like second year, I was getting a little frustrated because we send every patient to therapy. And oftentimes patients would ask me, well, what are they going to do for me? And I'm sitting there thinking, I have no idea, right? Like we have such a collaboration with therapy and yet we have no exposure to therapy. I've asked many of my attendings, my bosses, like, why don't we do a formal like physical therapy rotation? You know, half of our intern years spent in non-orthopedic specialties. We do plastic surgery, neurosurgery, all these different things. And I think it would be super useful to spend some time with a therapist because I think honestly, we have a closer relationship with the physical therapist more than any other even medical specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, over the years you get to know, you get to pick up on a little little bit of this and a little bit of that and and, you know I found myself writing in a lot of scripts like okay for modalities like as if I knew what modalities was right (laughs) oh no and I I would say like oh yeah they use they use ultrasound stuff right like they (laughs) and then a lot of patients would be like oh yeah okay fine that sounds great that sounds fancy and I would have no idea what that means and so um my uh my I think it was my, yeah, my third year, we did a hand rotation and we spent some time with the occupational therapist. I spent one day with them. I thought that one day with the occupational therapist was so educational, just one day. I couldn't even imagine what spending a month with therapists um, would do for, for our education, not just education, but like literally us being able to tell patients like, hey, they can work with you guys on X, Y, and Z and it will help because of, you know, A, B, C. And so I wish I had more of that. Um, you know, a lot of times we're just writing, you know, please work on strengthening uh, range of motion and then, you know, modalities. <laughs> We're just like, yep, that's what we do. <laughs> yep. I mean, I'm sure generationally or, you know, what's the better word? Those who have been physicians for like 50 years or so who have been in the field forever. And, you know, sometimes you get pushback where the physician's like, well, I wanted them only to come into the clinic and only get ultrasound or only get e for like, 30 minutes and we're like um that's not how it works we do our own eval and we determine what's best for them and then you know we also can't really leave someone on a stim machine for 30 minutes because insurance isn't gonna like that so but it's like you know we kind of have to fight insurance and then the patient's viewpoint and then the physician that like referred them to us and you know it's like okay how do we make everybody in this group happy 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think one way to, to kind of help with that is I think where things are headed, in, at least in orthopedics, is you have a lot of these private uh, groups now, these, these private practices that are making their own physical therapy in-house. And so uh, they'll have, you know, several, if not, you know, dozen or so physical therapists at multiple locations that they own. Um, and it's their own therapists. And yeah, it's a way to make money, but but it really is, I think, better care for the patients because the surgeons know the therapist, the therapists know the surgeons, they all know each other's preferences, they trust each other. Um, and it really makes for a really cohesive environment for patients to to get their therapy, oftentimes convenient because it's at the same location where they're going to. And oftentimes all these therapists have all the surgeons, you know, cell phone numbers, and there's this open line of communication. And while surgeons can't tell patients to go to therapy places that, you know, they're, they own in a group because of, you know, various laws, they can definitely give them the option and tell them like, Hey, if you go here, like it could be better for you. And I do think that is, I think that's where things are headed. And I think it's a good thing for patients. Yeah, I think that's great. I just think there's so much collaboration in both inpatient and the outpatient side. And, you know, obviously through social media, which is how we network to get to, to get to know each other. And then, you know, there's other physicians who I've spoken with through either TikTok or Instagram that have just been huge, you know, conversation starters. And I hope there's people listening from, you know, both disciplines that really just see, okay, moving forward, there's so much more collaborative care and there's so much more research out there promoting more active lifestyles for people and, you know, less of that like negative nocebic type language and, you know, trying to people, trying to get people or our patients to be as independent as possible is almost exciting that these conversations are happening because it's like, great, that means that we're all moving in this direction where we all, you know, more equally respect each other, for lack of better words, because I feel like maybe 10, 20 years ago, there was still kind of like that funky relationship. I'll say that. <laughs> Obviously, I wasn't doing what I'm doing 20 years ago, but <laughs> um, but I can say, you know, from my experience in the last several years, you know, I, I see nothing but respect from both sides. Uh, I think it's a really, you know, um, good relationship um, that this, my attending surgeons have with the physical therapists and, and, and vice versa. And so I, I think that's terrific. Yeah. What would you have as tips, if any, for either med students or even PT students who are now, they're going into residency or their, you know, PTs are now going into practice, going into, you know, kind of like that orthopedic mindset? Do you have any advice for them? Well, I guess, you know, starting for like pre-med or pre-PT or someone who maybe is in, in college or, or something and trying to decide on, on a career choice, the first thing you have to do is you have to just, you know, ask yourself the question is like, can you do this? And you have to believe in yourself in, in, in doing whatever you want to do. Uh, you can't expect someone else to believe in you if you don't believe in yourself. So only you know what you're capable of and you have to know kind of deep inside, like, can I do this? And if the answer is yes, then you should go all in um, and you, you need to go all in. Um, that's the most important thing. Once you've made that decision, don't let anyone tell you that you can't do it, whatever that is, whether you want to go to dental school or, or podiatry school or medical school or physical therapy school. And then I'm a big believer in kind of picking the end goal and then working backwards. And so you decide where you want to be, and then you, you work backwards and you figure out what are the steps to, that I need to take to get there. Kind of early on in college, I, you know, once I made the decision, I definitely wanted to go to medical school. I actually did this thing, which sounded kind of silly at the time. I don't know. I, it worked for me. And I, I actually made this resume where I, you know, wrote everything down that I had done in like black ink. And then I actually wrote down some things that I wanted to achieve in red ink. Uh, along the way. And then I actually, you know, as the years went on, as I 
did those things and, and gained those opportunities or experiences, I would turn the red ink into, into black. And there were some changes along the way, obviously, but you really have to kind of, I think, do that and, and achieve each of those steps kind of kind of sequentially and, and aim high, you know? There's nothing wrong with, with aiming high. Uh, and then once you get to a point in your life where you know, you've gotten into medical school or, or, or physical therapy school and um, things are getting busy and, and tough, I think you have to, you really have to plan ahead, prioritize. So, you know, whether that be test taking in, you know, non-clinical years of school, you know, you really have to map out your days, you know, things get busy and you really can't procrastinate. Med school is not the same as college. College is not the same as high school. Um, you really got to plan each day. You got to, you know, one chapter a day, and then eventually I'll be able to do 20 chapters, you know, pulling all nighters two days before tests is not the way to go. And then, you know, in clinical years, I think, you know, that's usually the most exciting, definitely medical school, just be yourself, have fun. I think people respond to people who are, who enjoy being there, you know, being present, coming to work with a smile on your face. I think people gravitate towards people who are like that. And I think that'll, that'll go a long way and help you. And then, you know, along the way, you know, just be open to, to change your mind as well. And it kind of contradicts what I was saying, but, you know, I'm someone who, when I started orthopedics, I wanted to do hand surgery and me being the planner I was, when I started to like spine, it really was like unsettling to me. And I, I was like, gosh, I don't like this feeling. You know, I had a plan. This is, this is supposed to happen. And so you can't ignore certain things that you're drawn to and, and, and you can never be embarrassed or, or, you know, too hard-headed to be able to change course if, if you need to um, would be, I guess, my final piece of advice. I like it. And I think that's super important because even as we, as we started this conversation, you know, there's, I always try to tell that to students on my platform. I'm like, you can go into school thinking that you want to do orthopedics and then you can graduate and end up in a nursing home or end up in pelvic health and do something completely from far left field. Um, so keep an open mind and be totally okay with change. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think that's, that's well said. Perfect. Where can people contact you if they want to reach out with any questions or add anything to the conversation? You know, I started this, uh, this Instagram page a couple months ago, which is how you, you found me and reached out to me. Uh, it's at Z Goldstein, MD, Goldstein, G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N, MD. And so I'm putting up a lot of stuff there, just fun videos and things about orthopedics. And so, you know, I, I respond to messages. Uh, is that, That'd be a good way to contact me. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure to have you. And you guys know where to find him if you have any questions. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the All Things Physical Therapy podcast. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe to stay updated on new episodes. You can find more episodes like these on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And to stay up to date, follow dpt.steph on Instagram or go to www.dptsteph.com.